Hi there, Lucas here. I just finished editing the episode that you're about to hear, but you see a lot's happened in the last few hours and I thought I should probably provide an update. It started last night when we stopped making progress inside the drill hole. Here's co-chief Chris McLeod. The bit got stuck in the hole briefly last night um, and actually took a few hours to be able to, to, to release it. Um, and when we brought the, the drill pipe back to the surface, we found that um, some of the roller cones on the end of the bit had broken off, Two, uh, three of them left in the hole. Our drill bits are made of tungsten carbide and consist of four rotating cones that cut the rock and surround a gap where the uncut core passes up to the ship. Um, and so uh, in that case, obviously, you can't drill ahead. Uh, and so we've been putting a pipe down the hole with a large magnet on the end to try and fish them out. So that's ongoing at the moment, and we're hoping that uh, we'll get that junk from the bottom of the hole, uh, and that will then allow us to carry on drilling. And then, just a couple hours ago, more news made its way around the ship. Unfortunately, we've just heard another problem, and that is that we're going to have to evacuate one of the crew members uh, for medical reasons. Uh, and the nearest landfall is Mauritius, and so as soon as the drill pipe's on deck, we're going to have to uh, up sticks and uh, head steam north as quickly as we can to get to, to land. It's not a, a desperate medical emergency, but he has to get to hospital, uh, and so everyone agrees that this is uh, the course of action we have to follow. Uh, it happens from time to time, and unfortunately, this is happening again now. So that's the latest from the Joides resolution. This is the reality of working in extremely remote locations, and it's a good thing that no one's taking any chances. The time lost is time lost from science. The cruises are never extended. It's just not possible logistically to do that. So uh, that's, these things happen. You just have to, to live with them. Uh, the overall objectives of starting a deep hole and with the intention of drilling to the Moho remain. Uh, presumably once we're able to clear the hole, which I think we're confident we can do quite easily, uh, then we would just carry on drilling. The, the objective of this expedition was to drill as deep as possible. It's just they're going to be able to drill a little bit less deep than we had hoped, and so be it. But otherwise, the goals are, are unchanged, and the science we'll be able to do from the calls we've been getting, which have been fantastic. So, without further ado, here's the next episode of A Hole in the Bottom of the Sea. We have 30 scientists on board this ship who work 24 hours a day on 12-hour shifts to process, describe, and analyze all of the rock samples we obtain. There are actually very few situations in geology where samples are analyzed to this detail, but so much effort and expense has gone into obtaining these rocks that you can't afford not to. Today, I'll take you through the life of a rock on board the Joides Resolution. We begin our story under 700 meters of water on Atlantis Bank. The rocks making up this undersea mountain have a 12 million year history, and it's this story that the scientists are trying to tell. The peaceful rest of our rock at the bottom of the sea is rudely interrupted when it meets our drill. A thin core of this rock is cut and hauled up to the deck of the ship through the center of the drill pipe. Core on deck. That's our driller Paul letting us know that it's time to come get some new samples. 
This announcement is heard throughout the ship every few hours. The core comes up in 9 meter long plastic tubes called core liners, and this is passed to the waiting lab technicians who cut it into meter long segments. These are brought into the core lab and the rocks are shaken out. The pieces of core are 6.5 centimeters in diameter and range in length from 1 or 2 to about 50 centimeters long. Sometimes they need some gentle encouragement. One of the things we're looking for on this expedition is how deep into ocean crust you can find microbial life. So the first scientist to get their hands on this core is one of the microbiologists, before the rocks are contaminated with all the microbes that are so abundant here on the surface. In this case, Jason is selecting the microbiology sample. We're generally looking for more altered rocks, because um, that means that there was fluid flow at some point. Um, as opposed to, you'll see a lot of rocks that are just very gray, um, which probably formed and then haven't seen any fluid flow. And so if there's no fluid flow, there's likely no microbes. Now up to this point, Jason has been selecting rocks with white veins through them and looking for microbes inside these. But this time, he selects a piece of core with a long, straight, rust-colored crack in it. If you want to change color, yeah. you, you got the white stuff will. so far, you've got some red <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why not try that? Okay, yeah, I like that one. So, now I put it in my bag. Now, we'll catch up with Jason and this sample on the next episode, but let's get back to the core that he left. The rest of the core is slowly pushed through a number of sensors. First, we hit it with a bunch of gamma rays. Here's Benoit with the details. GRA stands for uh, gamma ray attenuation, so it's yeah. actually an indirect measurement of the density of the core. So we figure out how dense the rock is by how much radiation passes through it. And this one is a magnetic loop, so it measures uh, magnetic susceptibility, which is uh, a property that tells about how much the, um, the rock has been actually magnetized by the Earth's magnetic field. And it's directly proportional to the amount of magnetic minerals in the core, the main one being magnetite. We'll talk a lot more about magnetic rocks in a future episode, as we expect to drill through a boundary that actually records a reversal of Earth's magnetic field. Lastly, we measure the natural radioactivity of the core. It's fairly low, close to the background level that we have in the lab here, actually. Um, but there are some spikes sometimes. They will typically tell us where there is more potassium and more uranium and thorium. These measurements provide clues for what the scientists should look at in more detail. The next step is to split the core into two halves, kind of like cutting a hot dog bun. It's Mike's job to decide exactly how to do it. I'm one of the structural geologists on the ship. There's three teams of core describers. Um, one of those teams describes the primary igneous nature of the rocks. One of those teams describes what happens to its next, the metamorphism of those rocks. And I'm in the structural team, which is looking at how the rocks get mangled and folded up and, and, and so on. Let me quickly define a couple of those terms for you. An igneous rock is one that is formed from the cooling of molten rock. And a rock is metamorphic if it has been altered from its original composition. Okay, back to Mike. My job is doing the jigsaw puzzle. And so um, what I have to do is line the core. And that means putting a line on it which runs down the axis of the core so that the ship's crew can cut the core in half. 
and the two halves of the core, one becomes a so-called archive half, which is saved for at least five years, but probably in perpetuity, and that's a permanent record of what we've done. And the other half becomes the working half, which is what the scientists take to analyze um, and to try and figure out how the rocks work, to do chemistry, to do magnetic measurements, to do pretty much every sort of measurement we can do on these things. But it's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. So if you think about a jigsaw puzzle that's just made of one, can, just one strip of pieces. And so basically what you're trying to do is to fit together those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. So each piece, which might be anything from a few centimeters long to 50 centimeters long, fit them together so they were in just the same orientation as they were when we drilled the hole in the earth. After Mike draws his line, the cores are cut and the three teams he mentioned go to work on the archive half, describing every little detail they can see in the rock. Each person is responsible for one specific type of observation throughout the entire core, so that each observation is consistent from the beginning to the end of the expedition. The first team to examine the cores are the igneous petrologists. We try to describe how much minerals in it yeah. to try to understand what is the original resources. You can see many deformation yeah. in the, these cores, but uh, our task is to identify what is a before the formation. Yes. <laughs> That's a quite a difficult task, but we will do it. <laughs> the job of the igneous team is to figure out what the minerals in the rock looked like when it first cooled from magma. On the other hand, the job of the metamorphic team is to figure out what has happened since then. For us uh, metamorphic petrologists, it's basically we look at the sample as a whole mm -hmm. and we divide the sample into different intervals based on its alteration intensity. So basically some of them are more altered than others. Some of them are very fresh, so that's uh, our main job in this, in this expedition. So if after we divide them into different intervals, we look at the rocks more closely. So basically we, uh, we know from the igneous uh, petrology that we know that it's made up of olivine, pyroxene, and plagioclase, is typical of gabbroic rocks. And after that, we look at how these different primary minerals are altered. When you look at this, so basically we divide these rocks into uh, its primary mineralogy, or basically its original minerals and we describe how these different minerals are altered. So basically olivine is altered to something like this, a reddish clay, pyroxene is fresh, and uh, plagioclase is fresh. And basically, um, after looking at these minerals very closely, we can get a very, very good clues on how these minerals, or what are the processes that uh, cause this transformation. Is it at high temperature? Is it at low temperature? Or is it at a medium temperature? Or, and what are the composition of the fluids that cause these processes? And what are its effects? We think of rocks as static and unchanging, but there's a plethora of chemical reactions which can change their composition. Often in the process, these reactions free elements that we living things need quite desperately. Well, alteration is really important. Basically, without alteration, all the minerals, all the elements will be just in rocks. And if that minerals will not, or elements will not be released due to alteration, uh, there will be no life. Basically, element would not be cycled. Uh, yeah, basically, alteration releases all these nutrients, these elements that keeps life possible on our planet. I found a couple more members of the structural team, Carlotta and Gustavo, examining thin sections in the microscope lab. Right now, I'm looking at an oxide gabbro, which has a lot of fractures 
and most of them are filled with alteration products. <laughs> and there is there is a strong degree of recrystallization in mainly in plagioclase, and that is enough. So what's happening right now is Gustavo is looking down a microscope at a very thin slice of rock. It's about the width of one human hair, and it's called a thin section. Thin sections allow for a very close examination of minerals within rocks by shining light through them under a microscope. Each mineral transmits light in a slightly different way. So by first polarizing the light that passes through them, essentially lining up all the light waves, Trained geologists can identify each mineral grain individually by viewing the colors produced. This is what Gustavo is doing right now. He's describing what he sees under the microscope to Carlotta, who's recording the observations. So what feature are you looking for specifically? Well, in here we specifically we look at the structures. The structures and the evidences for deformation and recrystallization. So in this case, I looked basically at plagioclase deformation and recrystallization. You have to show a look at the, the photo that oh you yeah. took this morning. Oh yeah, and then sometimes when you get bored, because anytime you look at the, the thing section, you see some shapes, okay? So you try to describe the shape as geologically correct as you can. But sometimes some weird shapes occur. Yeah. So you see a nice horse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do see the horse, it's true. <laughs> so we call uh, the shape as horse-shaped clinopyroxene. It's sort of like when you're lo laying down, you look in the clouds and you imagine Yeah, when whatever. you see something in the clouds and sometimes. Yeah. Like the cores are photographed at nearly every stage of analysis. I ran into Bill, our imaging specialist, taking close-up photos of some intricate faults cutting across one sample. 45 to, 45 to 51, so they, it, this one, look at that. Wow, that's gorgeous. Look at that, it's just gorgeous. Yeah, those are faults cutting across that? Well, I am a lowly photographer. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like being at a Howard Johnson's, you know. Okay. I've been associated with this program for 12 years now, and a lot of this geology stuff has just kind of soaked in from osmosis, you know, just kind of, you know. so. I can talk the stuff real well. Yeah. I have no clue <laughs> about what it really is. No, I do. I have a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you do. I have a little bit of a clue. You got to have a little bit of a clue so you know what the scientists are wanting to look for. Yeah. Right? You know? Yeah. Bill is photographing samples from the archive half of the core that Mike mentioned earlier. The other half, the working half, is laid out on a table across the lab. Currently, it's surrounded by geologists who are placing colorful little stickers on it. Each of these stickers has a few letters on it, XRD, ICP, TS, and all of these correspond to different methods of analyzing the core that the scientists want to perform at exactly the place that they put their sticker. For example, a TS sticker means a scientist wants a thin section made at that point. Let's follow a sample under one of these stickers, one with the letters ICP on them which is short for Inductively Coupled Plasma Atomic Emission Spectrophotometer. You can see why we call it ICP. The technicians cut out a small section of rock where the sticker was placed, and that section is then sent to Susan. Okay, so ICP is an analysis uh, that tells you uh, the element ratios of your samples. So this process allows us to figure out what the exact mixture of elements is that makes up a sample of rock. Everything has to be 
super clean and precise and any little like speck of contamination can affect your results. Susan takes the sample and prepares it for crushing. Oh, you're, you're like standing on it. It's like an yeah, obelisk can, of rock. You can sort of play Jenga with, a, you know, you sandwich it in between these Teflon discs. Mm-hmm. We'll try it this way. And just put a little sleeve of Coraline around it so when it busts open, all the little bits don't go everywhere. Right. Next, this all gets loaded into a rock crusher, which looks exactly like you'd expect. It's a thick box with a large metal wheel on top that controls a press inside. You get a little anxious because you're sort of waiting. It's like it's like you, when you see someone playing with a balloon and you know like any second it's going to pop, but you don't know when it's coming. It's sort of like that kind of tension. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> the valve, so it uses a hydraulic fluid to okay. build up its pressure. Cool. Um, and you're gonna I see, see the there. you're gonna see the tons of pressure on the gauge go up. That is the sound of a rock snapping. And we broke the Teflon disc. You gotta relate that to Teflon pans and omelets somehow. Something about omelets and breaking eggs. Yeah. yeah. At this point, the sample is crushed. But for this analysis, you need to truly pulverize it into a powder. Yeah, so this uh, round little canister right here is made out of tungsten carbide. Okay, same thing as a drill bit. Same thing as the drill bit, exactly. In both these cases, tungsten carbide is used because it's super hard. A 9 on Mohs hardness scale. For comparison, a 10 on the same scale is diamond, which is the hardest known natural substance. That's a little round cylinder, and then we have essentially a big hockey puck, uh, also made out of tungsten carbide, that you put inside of it. Ah. You lock it in place, close the box, uh, and you will experience what sounds like the most awfully imbalanced washing machine, perhaps with a few steel-toed boots inside of it. Uh, and that's basically what it does. It shakes the canister so that hockey puck inside uh, crushes the rock in between the tungsten carbide walls of your cylinder. You can't make an omelet without breaking a few Teflon discs. Whoa. It's like... It's like floating in the air, it's so fine. It is, it's super fine. Wow. All right, so you're opening a safe right now. I am opening a safe right now. Why are you opening a safe? (laughs) Uh, This is where we keep our precious, precious uh, platinum crucibles. So they're just these little cups and they're made out of 95% platinum, 5% gold. The powdered sample goes into one of these very expensive shot glasses and is placed in a really strange looking machine. It's a, it's a totally enclosed little box, um, a little like heat-proof box uh, with a little window that you can see inside of it. And when it starts running, it's going to first uh, bring that powder up to about 750 Celsius. Um, so it's going to be really hot for sure, uh, but it doesn't start actually melting and glowing till the next phase where it brings it up for a couple minutes to over 1,000 degrees C. Oh. Uh, and that's the cool part because it actually like glows orange and you feel like you're in the depths of Mordor forging the one ring to rule them all. And that's why it's my favorite part of the process. <laughs> so 
there we go. I just swirled around her a little hot molten piece of rock glass there. And I'll set it down to cool. And because it was so hot and uh, it's cooling down to room temperature now, sometimes it'll just crack on its own. Rock glass. These pieces of glass bead are taken across the hall and dissolved in nitric acid before being loaded into the ICP. Remember, that's an inductively coupled plasma atomic emission spectrophotometer. This machine sprays a fine mist of the sample solution through a plasma flame. This produces light, and by recording the wavelengths of this light, geochemists can interpret the data from this machine and determine the elements that are present in the sample. When it comes down to it, it's actually pretty magical. After our two-month expedition, all the cores will be packed up and sent to a core repository in Japan. There are actually three of these around the world. One in College Station, Texas, one in Bremen, Germany, and this third one in Kochi, Japan. In total, these three repositories hold over 360 kilometers of core from the seafloor. For one year, these samples are reserved for the scientists who devoted two months of their life to working on this expedition. But after that, any scientist may request samples from the working half of the core, or may view the archive half. This way, the core remains publicly and freely accessible for the foreseeable future. You can follow the latest updates from Expedition 360 at joidesresolution.org. That's joidesresolution.org, as well as facebook.com slash joidesresolution, and on Twitter, at thejr. A Hole in the Bottom of the Sea is supported by the European Consortium for Ocean Research Drilling's Scientific Support and Advisory Committee, as well as the International Ocean Discovery Program, the National Science Foundation, and the U.S. Science Support Program. This episode was produced and edited by myself, with support from Sharon Cooper. You can follow me on Twitter, at Lucas Cavanaugh, or visit my website, lucas.fyi. The music used in this episode is by Bureaucratic. Visit him on the web at bureaucratic.bandcamp.com. <laughs>